0: Author William Shakespeare certainly appreciated the power of graveyard and ghostly apparitions in his novels. He penned these blood-curdling lines that I'll share to start us out. The witching time of night, when churchyards yawned and hell itself breathes out contagions of this world. Now could I drink hot blood and do such bitter business as the day would quake to the cold." Shakespeare was able to fuel the nation's love of a good, terrifying tale. There's nothing that compares than sitting petrified by the fireside's flickering light to hear ghostly stories of tales from long ago. Fortunately, even today, the art of the storyteller brings these tales to life in a tradition, shall we say, will never die. For this special Halloween podcast, we're going to share scary stories around the campfire, all based on actual historical events. We hope you enjoy. From a child born into this world, we are taught what to believe. Close-minded, we become fearful to be deceived. Still, we desire to know what lies beyond that locked door. The art of the storyteller, conjuring tales of legend and lore. History hidden, lost knowledge, things forgotten and the unknown. These are the things that direct us and will set the tone. Welcome, friends, to another episode of Nightmares on the Lost Highway. It was the evening of October 31st. According to the ancient Celtic view, the old year was about to end. Across the western Atlantic seaboard, the gathering darkness cloaked the lands and shrouds of mist. The turbulent event of the sun setting on this day began to open up a realm to the Shadow Kingdom. The closing of one door and the opening of the new year approached, where worlds collided and mixed with one another. This was Samhain, the Feast of the Dying Sun, a time of the mysterious, the marvelous, and the mischievous. The ancient tradition of Samhain started with the lighting of a single giant bonfire. This could be seen across the land. This was to celebrate the new year that lied just ahead. Runners would then carry torches from that source fire and travel and light surrounding smaller fires. Sparks of fire ignited the night sky, and the land was bathed in flame. On this night the walls between the worlds could be breached. On this night, all the way through midwinter, the power of the darkness would continue to grow. Barriers between past, present, and future ceased to exist as if with a revolving door. Ancestral spirits came back to visit the living, crossing the threshold of the afterworld. Ethereal beings would be allowed to roam far and wide across the earth, often wreaking havoc in mischievous actions of unsuspecting victims. Weary human travelers might find themselves confused or lost somewhere between the veils, perhaps around a campfire tale with nightmarish stories to tell. Welcome, friends, to a very special Halloween edition
1: of Nightmares on the Lost Highway. I think we're we're fortunate that, that we release on Saturdays, and this year, Saturday, uh, Halloween falls on Saturday. Boom, right so, on that Saturday. Uh, we're going to... I think we're going to run a little bit long, is the plan today. We're going to tell some stories, try to evoke that feeling of sitting around the campfire just telling some old tales. So, Eric, I know I've talked to you about Ape Canyon once before.
0: At least once or twice. It's
1: uh one of my, my, my favorite stories involving... Well, what these gentlemen called guerrilla men. And in the summer of 1924, a group of prospectors stumbled out of the woods one day, shaking and glassy-eyed, uh, seemingly uh, in shock and traumatized by something that they had experienced not that long before. Uh, there was uh, Fred Beck, Gabe Lefevre, John Peterson, Marion Smith, and then Smith's son, Roy. They claimed they had been beset by gorilla men gorilla men in their 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 cabin they were this is out in california i believe or, or no oregon uh out in the you know pacific northwest these men were of course gold hunters they would built this cabin out in the woods way way back in this canyon and that was sort of their base camp for their operations they, they'd strike out from there to, to find their gold deposits wherever they might they were doing okay and they were coming back about they were about eight miles from a place called spirit lake when they encountered four animals moving through the forest, they walked like humans, uh, covered in long black hair. Uh, they described them having four-inch-long ears that stick straight up, which is a little weird. That's unusual. Uh, they had four toes on each foot, short and stubby. They would estimate that each was about four hundred pounds. Big so these gals. are these are big cr- creatures. These are, of course, you know, you see something like that in the woods, you 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 kind of panic a little bit. So Fred Beck took up his rifle, and began shooting. Of course, if we don't understand it, shoot it. Apparently, he shot one of them three times, and this wounded animal toppled from a cliff. They figured, okay, the other the others ran off. We're safe. So they, uh, they of course, hightailed it back to their cabin, underestimating just how safe they were going to be that night. <laughs> As the night wore on, they were awakened by, by these loud bangs and booms, and uh, realized they were having large rocks thrown in their cabin. Now, mind you, you know, back in the day, this wasn't a a well-built cabin. This was sort of a shoddily, quickly put-together cabin. A shack. Yeah, I mean, just a little more than a shack. Then, uh, as the night wore on, things got later and later, they heard large bodies being thrown against the walls and the doors. And eventually, one of these creatures managed to tear a hole in the roof. And once they ripped the hole in the roof And they were able to see who was inside It became clear that Beck was their target (laughs) They were after him Beck had shot one of their own They uh Somehow managed to chuck two rocks Through the roof, that hole in the roof That hit Beck specifically Knocking him unconscious They seemed To kind of back off A little bit after they had injured Beck But they, they continued to attack this cabin Throughout the night, chucking rocks at it Throwing their bodies against it. Uh, finally, when the sun rose, they seemed to feel that their work had been completed, and these these beasts lumbered back into the woods to leave these men in, at peace. Now, obviously, cautiously, they opened the door. They peeked around, and as soon as they realized <laughs> the door left, yeah, as soon as they realized the these hairy ape men were gone, these these guys just hightailed it back to civilization. We out of here. <laughs> Um, you know, I I'm a sucker for a good monster story, and and Bigfoot is is sort of America's monster. I think we can classify him as such. Absolutely. And most stories are peaceful, but again, a good monster story. Monsters don't need to be friendly, and I, I like Abe Canyon in in that you know this guy shot one of them and killed it. You know, apparently and dropped him off of a cliff. Yeah, and and the rest Oof. the rest of them weren't having it. They they wanted to get their revenge. So. Good one. Good one. Well, I'm going to share one, um, you know, tonight as
0: we visit regions of mystery and where reality is thin here on Halloween Eve and Halloween night. Here on the borders of the Fairyland, far across the sea, plants and animals may have coexisted with humans in the Fae, where realms can overlap and intertwine with one another. A lot of these tales overseas is even sharper than what they are here in the Americas. For example, in Scotland and Wales, a hawthorn and a yew tree are considered to be fae or fairy trees. Some believe in planting these fledgling trees of hawthorn and yew are like a tribute of respect for the world of the fae. Um, And those who may be uproot and cut down trees might get ill favor towards them from the land of the fae. Possibly, you know, decades later after planting Uh, these small trees and saplings, you might actually create a place that would draw the Fae in. Once that story is told, in St. de Grimes Church in North Wales, there's actually a 4,000-year-old yew tree. It's considered the oldest living species of its kind in the world. This massive tree resides near an old church building, And as it would be, it's surrounded by a cemetery of once living souls. Some believe, in the ways of this old tree, that it's a portal, if you will, to the realm of the fae. And this tree is like a guardian protecting those that are buried under its massive roots of the cemetery. Now the spirit of the yew tree is said to whisper names of those in the parish that are doomed to die that year. Kind of a creepy little deal. Yeah, you wouldn't want to hear that. You don't want to hear your name. But on one fateful summer night, a gentleman by the name of Sion Robert, he was a tailor, happened to be drinking, as people often do, in the old pubs and taverns. And it was a festive night. There was bards plucking on a lute in one corner and singing songs of the old ways. This old cobblestone fire hearth that added warm glow and heated across the, the creaking wood floors. And Mr. Sion Roberts raised his glass, standing boldly at his table, surrounded by dozens of others as they listened to stories of the night. He drunkenly announces that he was going to prove the story of the Whispering You was nothing more than a myth.
1: You you probably shouldn't challenge, you know, ancient held beliefs.
0: Alcohol gives you a lot of power. (laughs) Maybe not, but seems to be. Well, many of the bar's patrons and close friends gasped that Sion Roberts of his blasphemous words and, and shocked that their friend would dare say this, un, even under the influence of the alcohol. But try as they might, they, they couldn't stop him. He rambled on for a while and ignored the warnings of his friends. It wasn't much longer, and he left the pub and weaved his way towards the old church graveyard. He approached the rock wall surrounding the area and As he approached, the gate swung freely open before he even touched it with a small gust of wind. Now, the chill of the air and and this gate opening up, it obviously surprised Sion Roberts. But uh, he collected his thoughts and the power of the alcohol gave him a superhero. (laughs) And he continued to step through that sacred ground. He weaved his ways through all the old cemetery stones and he directed his attention to this massive guardian yew tree. Standing confidently beneath the tree, he was shocked and found voiceless by a grim voice that of course murmured his name. Yeah, again, that's not you don't you don't want to hear that. Sion Roberts. Scion's heart was paced and with fear, and he blurted out, Hold fast, hold fast, I'm not ready. But another gust of wind ripped through the limbs of the ancient tree and showered him with rain droplets and leaves cascading down upon him, almost as if it was erasing him from existence already. <laughs> now, Sion, he quickly ran out of the, away from the old yew tree, but he just leaped right over the stone wall. He didn't bother <laughs> to use the gate this time. And he felt thousands of eyes, and he said voices were, were crying to him, using his name over and over But ready or not, run as he might, Sion Roberts did not escape and died that same year.
1: Well, I mean, death comes for us all.
0: The Grim Reaper, obviously, you know, is a tale that we're all familiar with. And again, you'll find many of the tales are shared uh, with consistencies. An interesting one.
1: Bill, what do you got next? Well, I wanted to share a couple little Missouri ghost tales. Ooh, I like Missouri ghost tales. You know, uh... I wanted to find some some fairly local folklore here the first one I've got is a uh, the devil's chair of Kirksville Missouri now mm-hmm. apparently the devil's chair is sort of a, a common occurrence uh, in this case it's a big marble chair uh, in the cemetery uh, in Kirksville Missouri they call it Baird the Baird chair it was placed there by William Baird who was a prominent banker in the area Uh, He himself is not actually buried in said cemetery, but instead buried across town. Interesting. Uh, His home became the new Chamber of Commerce. Now, uh, the locals call it the Devil's Chair because apparently if you sit there on a certain night or midnight or whatever, you know, it's a bunch of kids hanging out near the graveyard. And, hey, you know, go sit in that chair and and whatever. (laughs) Um, Now, typical Devil's Chair, something bad is going to happen to you. And the story of the Baird Chair is if you sit there at midnight on Halloween or midnight or, you know... Full moon or something. Yeah, I mean, that story depends on who you talk to. Uh, Undead hands are going to come forth from the graves to drag you down to join amongst their ranks. Ooh. I don't think anybody's ever actually seen that happen. (laughs) Uh, uh, Dig around a little bit more, and and, and other devil's chairs, of course, are, are known to do different things you have the devil there are certain ones that just scare you to death you know you're you're found in the chair the next day your hair gone white right you know dead to the world Um, one of them apparently grants some sort of supernatural gift you have uh, i think they they called it a superpower but they could they didn't go into any detail so Hmm. i think if you're going to sit in the devil's chair you're probably taking a gamble right it seems like more often than not you're going to get drugged down to hell now, I, I did like that one, but that one there's not much to it. You know, just, just don't sit in a devil's chair. Don't sit there. Now the other one is kinda you know, you and I have, have had our I don't want to say run in, but definitely our adventures here. And uh what talk about the Hornet Spook Light.
0: Oh yes.
1: Yeah, um for a little background, uh, the Hornet Spook Light is kind of an orange globe of light. Said to bob and bounce along a dirt road in northeast Oklahoma, not far from Joplin. Uh, actually, the the name Hornet is from the Missouri town of Hornet, where it is pretty close to there.
0: And we've both actually went there.
1: Yeah, encountered some of the locals, and now we didn't see anything. I don't remember. I don't I don't remember seeing anything.
0: I remember that night there was a lot of sightseers. A yeah, lot of a cars. lot of people there. It was kind of surprising.
1: Sort of, a, yeah, I mean, it's a local legend. People go there. So. Now, uh,. This area is also known as the Devil's Promenade by locals. So, you know. There's that uh, devil again. A nice fittingly spooky name. But the, the, the light will travel east to west along a four-mile gravel road. This light was supposedly first seen by Native Americans who were traveling along the infamous Trail of Tears in 1836 as it would dance and spin down along this, this path. And it would rise and sometimes hover above the treetops before disappearing. Uh, some describe its motion as swinging side to side like a lantern. And the oldest tale of the origins of the spook light is from the Quapaw Indians. They say a Quapaw maiden that she'd fallen in love with this brave, but her father would not allow her to marry him. He didn't. Uh, he didn't have a large enough dowry to secure, you know, her hand in marriage. And so they, they ran off, they eloped, but they were pursued by a party of warriors because, of course, her father's not having it. Not having that, yeah, yeah. Um, the couple, close uh, to being apprehended, they joined hands and leapt to their death into the Spring River. And shortly after that, you would begin to see the light. And, and then that light is, of course, them you know searching for their place in this world. Now another one is that it, uh, a miner who returned to his cabin to find that Indians had attacked while he was away. His wife and children were missing, and he took up his lantern and, and to this day continues to search for his missing wife and child. Mm. Sad story. And then others will say it's the ghost of an Osage chief who was decapitated. And he carries a lantern and continues to look for his missing head to this very day. A headless horseman, if you will. Now, my favorite story of the origin of the Hornet Spooklight, and uh, this goes back to my childhood, I had, I had heard this tale told by a masterful, masterful storyteller. I was, uh, of course, my father worked at Silver Dollar City when I was growing up. and I had many opportunities to go to Silver Dollar City. And, uh, there was a gentleman who walked the streets telling tales. And, and I sat down and listened to him one time when I was younger. Cause of course, things like this always fascinated me. Well, my favorite tale of the origin of the spook light is the soldiers returning home from war. Now he's done some bad things bad things happen in war people do horrible horrible things Right. and they may be doing them for good reasons at his heart this soldier was a good man He's returning from war and uh, he settles down in this region builds himself a, a house and, and, and starts a family does all the things that a man would do and when he passes away he finds himself standing before the pearly gates and and there St. Peter looks at him and like you've done some, some terrible, terrible things, my friend. We we can't let you in. And he goes, Come on, you know, I'm a good man, I'm a good man. I've done I've done plenty of good things. You know, I raised a family, I took care of my wife and kids. Of course they can't forgive the atrocities of war. So they're like, Well, you know, not if good enough. You're not gonna hang out here, there's only one other place for you and they send him they send him down. So this old this old soldier finds himself before the gates of hell, and he knocks on the door and then a, a demon greets him, and he says, you know, I I can, can't be accepted into heaven for all the horrible things I've done, so well, here I am. And the demon, you know, consults and, and, and tells him, well, no, no, you've done too many good things. You've done too, you've done too good much things. good. Yeah, you know, you took care of your family. You did good. Uh, you fought for the right reasons. We can't have you here. <laughs> so this old fellow, you know, he's standing there at the gates of hell. He goes, well, I can't go to heaven, and I can't go to hell. Where do I go? And the demon goes, hang on a moment. And he takes a ember of hellfire, and he sticks it in an old lantern, an old cast-iron lantern, and they pass it through the gate to him. And uh, they say, okay, well, you know, heaven won't have you, hell won't have you, won't you? I mean, you're going to have to search for the place that will take you in the afterlife. Wow, roam the earth. And so this old soldier is condemned to roam the earth uh, with this little blot of hellfire in this lantern looking for for his afterlife. I never heard that one. I like that. Again, I don't do that story justice. The way it was told to me originally, the way I heard it, it was just fantastic. And I I couldn't give you the guy's name. I can't credit him now. But I will say that that story captured my imagination as a child. And I've always, always loved that story as an origin for the, the spook light phenomenon.
0: That's pretty cool. Pretty cool.
1: Well, I'm going to share another story from overseas. And
0: again, we were talking before I started recording. It uh, seems like the fae seemed to pop up on on several of my stories. That wasn't intentional, but often when I travel and, and go overseas and look for stories and stuff, that you know, it's it's a common thread. But in this story, uh, we talk about the fae, but it, it was not just humans that dwelled in the fairyland. Sometimes it was the fairies that were seduced and tricked to stay here with the mortal realm where there may may have even become mates to human lovers. Marriages were considered not uncommon between the fae and the human back, say, in the 14th century. Uh, Many important Celtic families actually claimed ancestral descent from these extraordinary unions, and you can find this in the history books still today. Uh, As early as the late 14th century, uh, it is told of a great fairy raid that descended to reclaim the wife of the heir of Donavigan, in the Isle of Skye. Now she had been granted permission to marry the chieftain of the Clan MacLeod for a period of one year and one day.
1: Clan MacLeod.
0: Clan MacLeod. There like can be the only islander? one. That's obviously <laughs> what come to my mind. And she was given permission for one year and one day. Not sure what the significance of that was, but it was very clear.
1: I, I think that time frame pops up quite a bit in fey a year and a day something a like a day. you know if you stay longer than that you can never go back or something like that all right well that was what she was told
0: and and she stayed to this rule um now during that brief period of their wedded bliss uh after it had come to an end she had to of course return to her own people uh, but they had had a child together during that time frame and that night as uh, she ran from the castle tower she held her newborn clutching her son close and and hugged him tightly. Now she made her husband, the clansman, promise that their child would never be left alone to cry. That plays a big part of this story. Now the Scottish chieftain, of course, didn't have much to say about this. He knew about this going in by marrying her that uh, one year and one day she had to return to her people. Uh, but obviously, you know, he was brokenhearted. He was sad to the loss of his wife. And so in the following weeks, a great feast and a festival was held by his people to try to console him. Now, this feast was full of rivalry and was proclaimed with much ale and dancing all the way until dawn. Now, a young maid had been assigned to watch the baby upstairs and um, And, of course, being a young lass herself... I'm assuming she had to sneak off. She heard all the festivals going on and the dancing and the laughing. So, sure enough, (laughs) she walked away from her duties of watching the babe and crept to the stairway to peer down below and watch. Now, she was fearful she was missing out. So, some say she actually even left the upstairs and went down. Some others said that she stayed up. Regardless, it didn't matter. She left the child... And sure enough, the baby started to cry. Now the baby supposedly cried such with such pity that it was heard in the land of the fae. And once again, the veil of the fae was pulled due to the last wish of the babe's fairy mother. Now She immediately appeared next to his crib and wrapped him in a fairy shawl was the words that was used and sang him a lullaby to put him to sleep. She kissed him gently on the forehead and, calming the baby's cry, put him fast to sleep and put him to bed. She was very displeased because her wish was not taken seriously that she decided to leave the baby with that fairy shawl that he was wrapped in, knowing it was a part of her that would continue to look over him and care and watch for him. Now, years later, this babe grew up and became a young lad himself, and he began to tell his father about that night that he remembered and in particular the shawl that he clutched the entire time of growing up and he said father this is a magical talisman and that mother gave it to me and she often would visit or speak through him with this artifact on three different occasions recorded in history the clan MacLeod faced mortal danger in all three occasions the fairy Shaw was waved by a banner a flag if you will under the army and the hosts of the Fae supposedly would appear to defend the kingdom waving this Shaw has already saved the Macleods' annihilation in battle several times extinction even from famine and a plague as well as victorious at many wars. Now to add a pinch of reality this very flag, or Shaw, is still on display at the Donovigan Castle to this day. And they're awaiting the final threat to the Clan MacLeod where it can be used. Wow. Kind of reminiscent of Excalibur, if you will, in the
1: Arthurian you know, well, legend. I was going to say, I think Arthur himself had a bit of fey blood, if the, if I remember correctly. Yes. so yeah. sure. And that really figures into a lot of those those myths and legends of that part of the world. Makes you want to go over and look at this fairy Shaw, yeah, definitely. All right, what you got next? Well, this is going to make you grin probably, sort of a weird, weird word. I'm going to tell you about the fofi. I have no clue what that is. <laughs> well, the people of the, the Congo, they know what the Fofi is. It's a, the, an African spider, sort of a trapdoor spider. It'll weave a web around the opening of its tunnel, and in the hopes of catching some prey. And then when those webs are, are agitated, it'll it'll pop forth from its little tunnel and grab its prey and drag it back down. Um, they're typically a dark color, uh, brown or, or or black with a with a purple blotch on their abdomen, sort of like a, a black widow spider might have. And their hatchlings are are a bright yellow, a very noticeable color. Why am I talking about this spider? I mean, spiders are bad enough, right? We got
0: brown recluses here in Missouri.
1: One of the the first documented sightings was by a British missionary named Arthur John Symes. He came upon one uh, in the 1890s near Lake Nyasa. Him and his men were were tromping through the jungle. I'm assuming he was there to convert, you know, missionaries in, in Africa. We've all we will all heard that old chestnut. <laughs> uh, when his men got entangled in these webs and triggered the Jabafo Fee to attack, well, two spiders came at them. One about two feet uh, in size, you know, across the legs. That's a big spider. And the other four feet. That's an even bigger spider. So the two feet one was assumed to be a male, since uh, in the spider world, males are a little bit smaller, usually. Now, Symes was bitten in this attack, but they were eventually able to escape After shooting one of the spiders, not long after he began to, uh, become very, very pale and develop severe chills. He got a severe swelling around the area of the bite and before dropping into unconsciousness would become delirious and rant and rave and, and, and and be completely unintelligible. And eventually he would succumb to the effects of the bite of the Jabafofe. Ooh. Now that's a, that's a big spider. That's a big You'd spider. have to assume the bite of a four-foot spider would leave a pretty good-sized hole in you. Yeah. Now, years later, there was another sighting of the Jabafophi by an English couple. They were traveling down the road when they saw this shape move across the road from. That was like a cat or a small dog. Uh, it was a spider, roughly three feet across. They didn't try to pursue said spider. <laughs> I'm not even sure if they continued down the road after that point, but they, on, they, didn't, they didn't want to have anything to do with it. Another recording of these creatures was uh, made by cryptozoologist William J. Gibbons. Now, right. Williams had gone to the Congo looking for Mikaeli Mbembe, which could be an entirely different story, but Mikaeli Mbembe is a Congolese dinosaur that's supposed to resemble the um, Brontosaurus. Uh, you know, I am the vaguely long, familiar with this. The sauropod-type dinosaur. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Had a movie back in the 80s. They spoke to the local pygmies about the Jabafofi. He had heard about it. And, he doubted its existence. And the Joppa and the Pygmies were. Oh no, it's real! It's real. We we've seen them. We we occasionally hunt them. Uh, said you know, gave him the exact description, except for they said the spiders could reach as much as five feet in in size. Wow! But they said that they typically would shy away from them if they you know they they didn't want to run into them at all. Sounds like good common sense. Yeah, five foot spider man, <laughs> a spider as big as a person, and these were pygmies. So who knows how big it was in relation to them? But they were they, you know. They told him, you know, you want to stay away from them. If you see them, don't mess with them. Don't mess with their eggs because I guess their eggs are like the size of a chicken egg or something. You know, they're they're noticeable, noticeably bigger than a you know normal spider. Right, right. But they said, uh, yeah, no. If you see the Jabafari, you just stay away from that thing. But luckily for him, they said, you know, the Jabafari had been, you know, they used to be much more common. They're slowly disappearing in the Congo, so maybe more reclusive. Yeah, may, may either hiding from us or, or maybe like you know, a lot of species, maybe we're just getting on rid the of line them. to extinction. Uh, now, there was a video released um in, in March of twenty thirteen on YouTube. It supposedly shows the Jabaf fofi near a watering hole in Mozambique. I've watched this video. I've watched this video more than once. What's your thoughts? I never saw the spider. Never saw the spider. It's it's a, it's a wide angle of this watering hole. It's got some trees on one side. And it's got like a single tree on the other. And they say if you watch by the single tree, you'll see the Fofi come up to the tree and then kind of go back. I would think
0: you would be able to see a foot, two foot, three foot, five foot spider.
1: There's something there. I'm not going to lie. There is something in the video. Hmm. Now, whether it's a five foot spider or... An, an alligator or a lion or whatever I, I could i can't tell you what it is i can tell you there's a thing there
0: well,
1: well, fair enough but of course i watched that video i wanted to see this giant show spider. me this big spider because uh well to be honest i want to see it in a video yeah I not wanna, in person not in person yeah i'm not going to ever not gonna like find laying it laying
0: in a tent in the congo and <laughs> the zipper unzips and the spider comes in
1: yeah i don't need to see an eight or eight foot i don't need to see a five foot spider in real life
0: <laughs> all right well i've got another story in. now this one's pretty in depth um this one kind of hits close to home Uh, it's called the 1159 death train of st louis missouri now to kind of set the pace here a little bit um, we're we're going back several years you got to keep in mind from about 1880 to the 1960s it was a time known as the golden age of train travel luxury sleeping cars were provided for passengers very comfortable accommodations And those that attended the individual's needs of those, the making of the beds and all, was called Pullman Car Porters, was their title. During this time, um, these first Pullman Car Porters were African American gentlemen. So when they organized the Brotherhood of Sleep Car Porters in 1926, theirs was the first all-black union in the United States. So they set a precedence in history. Now, like most groups, the porters had their own language, slang, and a network of stories, of course. You can imagine the stories from the rails from back in that time. One of these was the Phantom Death Train, known in railroad language simply as the 1159. Now, an example of this type of story um, was what the porters would often share when they were off duty. Often, the old-timers would share with, with the newer porters. Now, one particular gentleman uh, in history, his name was Lester Simmons. He was a 30-year retired Pullman car porter, and he had this golden watch to prove it that the company had given him when he had retired.
1: See, they, that I, I've seen that kind of where you get a golden watch at a certain point, And, of
0: course, the railroad watch is known to keep precise time. It's a shame that's not a tradition that continues today. Yeah, now it's like a plastic watch ordered from overseas. (laughs) You get a kick in the pants on your way out the door. (laughs) (laughs) But uh, on one such night, uh, Mr. Lester Simmons, um, as he had done many times before, found himself gathered in uh, a familiar area off of Compton Avenue, Uh, It's called the Porter's House, and it was like a little restaurant area where a lot of the porters would gather. Now, I should also add to your point, uh, he had the gold watch, and he had his retirement, but it was actually $24 a month. That was his retirement. So he often worked as Shining Shoes down at the train station because the train station and the people he worked with had become really the only family he had, and he used that to supplement his income. But on this night, he was there at the small cafe, surrounded by a handful of listeners, some of the younger porters, and there was one gentleman that they were sharing a story about. His name, he was called Big Daddy Joe. Now, Big Daddy Joe is kind of probably what you would expect. <laughs> Big, muscular, mountain of a man. The kind, in, of, the kind of guy they write
1: old country songs about.
0: Uh, much like Paul Bunyan would be, you know, uh, that kind of deal. And... The stories was that he could stand flat-footed in the middle of one of these rail cars and make both beds reaching off to the right and the left where everybody else would literally have to like climb up to reach him and all this. So this man was a local hero, big, massive guy. But they were talking that the 1159 death train had come and taken him, meaning that he had passed away in his sleep. The rumors, the story was, when you heard this lonely train call, That occurred at eleven fifty nine. You had twenty four hours notice to get your affairs in order
1: because you weren't going to live more than twenty four hours. I see when you when you started talking I had in in my head, you know the start of the story I had the image of an actual you know ghost train. Ghost train, yeah. I uh but I that's that's a little creepy. Now to add
0: kind of some background to this, eleven fifty nine is a weird time for a train call uh usually right before midnight uh, so we're talking late in the evening uh it was considered bad luck so no train would be boarding during that time and the people who would hear this and the stories being passed along they couldn't even explain where that train call was coming from it wasn't like oh that's that train there it was just kind of kind of a peer, uh to be heard but they were all talking, and basically the story was that no one could escape the 1159, the death train. You know, Even Big Daddy Joe was taken down. Now, as they were telling this story, one of the younger porters had asked uh, Lester, he said, do you know of anybody that's ever heard the whistle of the 1159 and lived to tell about it? And he kind of bowed his head, and he replied, not a living soul ever. There was no way to escape this. Now, another porter spoke up, and he asked, did you all hear about Old Tip? Now, Old Tip was another one of the old-time porters, and uh, Mr. Simmons had raised his head because he had served with Old Tip, and he said, no, what about him? And he says, well, he caught the 1159 up in Kansas City just a few months ago, and he was kind of saddened to hear that because Old Tip was a close friend, and he had not heard of the passing. And he kind of shook his head and he goes well i guess there's getting to be fewer and fewer of us old-timers there's only one other besides myself a gentleman by the name of willie beavers so basically it's just the two of us that would still remain now lester he looked down at this golden watch that he'd retired and he'd lost track of time and he knew he had to be shining shoes the next day so he excused himself and uh, said his usual goodbyes, and took across his normal route back home, across the 18th Street Bridge. Now, that went right over the train station. And in the darkness, he looked down over the train yard, picking out familiar shapes. He picked out the Hummingbird and the Zephyr, both were popular trains at that time, that he had worked on individually. But the time was kind of a new dawning of an age of airplanes. So... This time of the magical era of railway railway traveling was coming to a close. Now, as he crossed that bridge, he felt a sharp pain in his chest. He said it stopped him in his tracks. At the exact same time, he heard the mournful sound of the train whistle. That carried from a far away off place in the wind. And ignoring the pain, Mr. Simmons just simply looked at the station and he knew nothing was scheduled to come in on that time, like what I had mentioned. Nervously, he lit a match in the darkness on top of the bridge, looking over the train station, and in that flickering light, he checked his golden watch, and sure enough, it was 11.59. He had just got the call, the call of the 11.59. No, he said in the darkness, I'm not ready, I've got plenty of life left in me, I'm going to find a way to beat this. Fear quickened his pace, and he quickly reached his small apartment, hurried up the steps, his mind racing with ways that he would plan the next 24 hours, his heart pounding. Beads of sweat started to come off of his forehead, and he felt a tingling sensation in his left arm. He gathered his thoughts for an idea. There wasn't a moment to waste, but in his own words that he had just said, ain't no way to escape the final ride on the 1159. But I'm going to try. Now, he spent the next several hours planning out the escape of that hauntful death train. He wouldn't eat or drink anything. Therefore, in his mind, I can't choke or die of food poisoning or cause a cooking fire if I'm cooking <laughs> in the kitchen. He shut off the space heater to avoid any explosions or a gas leak. He nailed the door and the single window shut so no intruders could come in and sneak in and possibly do him harm. Still he wondered, it's a nice calm night, it's warm, but what if there's that storm, it could bust through the window. Shards of glass could hit me. So he moved his high-back chair against the window and he sat firmly there, afraid to turn on a light, he sat there as darkness crept into his apartment. I will survive, he said. He sat there in the dark that entire night tricks of shadows in the apartment messing with his mind and then he heard a knock on the door and he was afraid to move afraid to answer it possibly it was someone with a gun that was going to rob him before long he heard footsteps leading off in the hallway i made it it wasn't about an hour later another knock on the door he ignored it again it went away the first time maybe it'll go away the second and he finally did kept hearing in the darkness the tick 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 of the golden watch that he clutched in his hand now at the mention of all of this the good and the bad he thought back over his life he had chose the rail life he had never got married never had any children and so he began to do what all of us would do what if what if i had went with my brother to chicago when he asked me to travel there What if I had married my my school sweetheart? But continued to hold the golden watch. Tick, 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 continued. He was just trying to buy the time to get through. He'd sat there for so long that he noticed his legs were starting to get numb. And before long, he started to nod off to sleep. He was awakened by what he thought he heard again was a train whistle. But afraid to light a match... In case there was a gas leak or to turn on a light he decided it's got to be getting close surely i must have slept a couple hours we must be getting close to the time he sat there for a little bit longer kept hearing the golden watch tick 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 finally he couldn't stand it anymore he pulled out a match gas leak or not i've got to know what time it is and he lit the match and he looked down and it was 11:57. <laughs> two minutes to spare he quickly extinguished the match, and he sat there. And he was just clutching, waiting for two minutes. He sat in silence, and he again felt his chest start to tighten with the stress. Then a few minutes, a ghostly apparition, an aura of faint blue light, stepped through his closed door, wearing a familiar train porter outfit. And he'd heard... A thousand voices all speaking to him of familiar people he had met through the years. Very confused, still clutching his chest, trying to understand what's going on. Just trying to buy that extra two minutes. When finally this apparition got closer, he said a voice came from the apparition. It says, it's me, old partner, and it was old tip realizing that it was old tip his friend even in a ghostly apparition seemed to bring calmness to mr simmons and the specter basically said uh, i'm here it's your time and he said well i knew i had to try to defeat it but i knew in my heart i couldn't it must not be so bad because a friend came back to get me and he goes i guess just this just leaves old willie beaver will be the only one left of our entire group And the specter old Tip replied, not for long, not for long. Finally, he kind of stood up out of the chair, rubbing his legs that had fallen asleep, holding his left arm that was now numb. Well, I'm ready. I think it's time. Then he saw a great single beam like a headlight, and he heard the deafening whistle blast one last time. Right before an engine tore through the entire front of the apartment, shattering glass and splintering wood, a renegade ghost engine collapsed and demolished everything in its path, including Lester's last heartbeat. Now, when Lester didn't show up to work at the shoeshine station for the next two days in a row, eventually some of his friends went to his place, found the apartment. It wasn't shattered. A train had not ran through it, but they did find their friend lying on the floor, his eyes open and affixed, clutching the golden watch. When they got the golden watch out, it had stopped on exactly 11.59, the ghost train. So
1: that's another one of those death comes for us all tales.
0: that uh, seems to be kind of a general trend. I don't think any of us are getting out of this alive.
1: Well, and, and the, you know, seeing all of his old friends there at the end, that, that seems to be... You know, hopefully, when the time I was comes, say, we that's can, what We you can get. only hope
0: for that. Definitely,
1: I will say that when my time comes, I don't want to remember the time I spent working in a factory. Though I don't <laughs> want that to be any indicator at the end. I used to always joke, and I have kind of a sick sense of humor, but that uh,
0: I would probably die at work, and they would taxidermy, maybe put a sign around my neck: "How may I help you?"
1: <laughs> okay, this this little off topic com- completely. And I, I continuously joke with my kids that when I do pass on, I want to be taxidermied. I want to be put on the couch with a television remote in my hand. And I want a, a motion-activated deal. So when they step between me and the TV, is one of my favorite sayings. I got it from my mom, and she got it from her dad. Hey, hey you're not made out of glass, you know. You make a bad window. <laughs> I really hope they don't do that. That'd yeah. be morbid.
0: <laughs> Reminds me of the Florida Frankenstein episode a little bit. Yeah, there
1: you go. So uh, that was a little dark. I'm gonna why? Thank you. Gonna lighten it up maybe a little bit. I want to talk about a, a lady who became known as Queen of the Fire Eaters back Ooh. in the 1800s. Her name was Joe Girardelli. I just kind of stumbled upon her story by by random one day, and there's really not a lot to it. There's not very much known about her, but she was known as Queen of the Fire Eaters, and her act was very well documented. Hmm. I'm all ears. So she's born in Italy in the 1780s. She moved to England around the 1810s, and she would perform for all classes of people. She wasn't she wasn't just in vogue with the the rich or the poor or whatever. Like everybody came to see Joe Ghirardelli, the Queen of the Fire Eaters. Uh, she would start her uh, shows by taking a mouthful of nitric acid, and she would swish that around in her mouth, uh, and then she would take out an iron bar and spit on it. And that acid would just sizzle as it hit that metal. So to prove that, like, this is actual this legit is acid. acid. And again, you know, people would, would look at her mouth and she'd be uninjured. You know, there were no sign that the acid had any effect on her whatsoever. Wow. The next trick, she would take uh She would have them bring out a big pot of boiling oil. And she would take this this boiling oil and she'd drop an egg into it. And then she'd bring, you know, scoop the egg out and crack it open to, to show that it had been cooked. Then she'd take a mouthful of that oil, swish it around a little bit, and then spit it into a fire where it would burst into flames. Now, mind you, boiling oil when she puts it in her mouth. And again... How can this be? Yeah, no sign of injury in her mouth. She would take a mouthful of molten sealing wax, you know, like you put on a a letter back in the old days. Right, right. And then she would ask an audience member to come forth and, and take and make an impression on the wax on her tongue. So, you know, she had audience participation. They were right there in her face looking at her. Uh, The next trick, one of her most well-known, was she would have them bring in a a container full of molten lead. I think you already know where this is going.
0: Dialing this up just constantly.
1: Yeah, I think you know where this is going. She would pick up the molten lead with her bare hands and pour it, you know, from her hand to her mouth. Cup her hand, basically, and pour it in. And then she would reach in and take out the coin-sized pieces that she had poured in there. To show that it was cooling in her mouth. There were a couple other things that she would occasionally do. Um, she would take a take a metal shovel and stick it into a fire. Wait for it to get red hot. And then she would pull that shovel out and place it against her skin and her hair. Ow. Yeah, and, and, and absolutely no sign that it was burning. Didn't burn the hair. Didn't singe the hair. And then she would always close the show by taking said shovel and pressing her tongue against it. And allowing the audience to hear the hiss of the the fl- liquid, you know, the saliva on her tongue as it Sizzled. steamed off. Now, the scientists and the skeptics of the time, they didn't believe it. They, they they weren't buying it. There was definitely something she was doing. She was taking some kind of action, some kind of precaution, something in her mouth, something on her, you know, some kind of preventative to keep her from being burned. Well, obviously would have to. She allowed herself to be, you know, Observed. Multiple examined, times yeah. examined, nobody could ever prove that she wasn't doing these things without protection. They're, they're, they never found any evidence of anything that she was doing to prevent herself from being burned. Um, she she became quite famous during her time in England, and then uh, now what time frame was this again? eighteen tens, eighteen twenties. Wow! But she came became quite famous, and sort of at the height of her fame. You know, they say you gotta you gotta leave them wanting more. She, right. she moved on from England and was never heard from again. Hmm. No one knows where she moved to. No one knows anything. Her life after she left England is, is sort of a blank. She just sort of disappeared in the end. Crazy, crazy, crazy. You know, we see the fire eaters today and they take the, the stuff. My son even watched a, a YouTube video that sort of walks you through the process of modern fire eating. And it's, while it's not the safest, it's definitely, you know, a... a there, there's an art form to it, and and you, there's a way to do it with with to minimize the injury to yourself. Use
0: protection. Kids always use protection. <laughs>
1: <laughs> but uh, the thing she was doing, like people, I mean, even today, they can't duplicate her feats. They don't know what she did, That's how she uncanny. did it. Canny.
0: That's wow.
1: But uh, the the headline I found just had her labeled as Joe Girardelli, the fireproof lady. And then you know I I read the story and just queen of the fire eater. The things that she did, it was.
0: Crazy. Now, did she ever come to the United States? Did you say?
1: No. Uh, she was born in Italy, moved to England, and then disappeared. Just disappeared from there. So very interesting. Yeah, just that, that she just kind of disappears. Huh. So, so if you're listening to this on the day we release it, which I don't, I don't know how often that happens. It's Halloween.
0: Halloween.
1: And Halloween, of course, we talked about the origins a little bit earlier. But there's been a lot of a lot of stories. They kinda come out of Halloween, a lot of urban legends. And we're just gonna kinda gonna shotgun blast some, some little tidbits here and we're gonna go back and forth, I think, and talk about these things. You know, you've got the, the old standout of the razor blade and the apple. Oh yes. Classic. You know, everybody hears that one. Of course these tales are always believed to be overblown and, and most individual instances are hoax. And not to say it's never happened, but uh, needles.
0: Uh, also putting yeah. apples. And,
1: and it, it kind of goes with the poison candy, the stories that started in the 80s. Um, but there was an actual story where a man did poison like one of those giant pixie sticks. The idea was he was trying to kill his kid to collect a life insurance policy. Oh, that's dark and grimacing. So yeah, in the instances of the poison candy, it's typically a family member or someone that somebody knows that does it. It's not just random strangers passing out toxic candy. Now that's not to say don't check your candy. Not necessarily the Hansel and Gretel story. I don't know if you've heard about temporary tattoos. Oh yeah, and the 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 story of the LSD laced tattoos and people tripping, or I've even I, I managed to stumble upon strychnine, so toxic poisonous tattoos. I've, I've
0: heard of rat poison uh, being put in it. freeze of course. Supposedly it has a sweet taste. Thank goodness I've never tasted it. I can't I can't attest to that. Yeah, antifreeze
1: is supposed to be sweet. That's what dogs want. It. That's why yeah.
0: dogs eat it. But yeah, another one I. <laughs> and I'm going to say I, I struggle with this. Uh, you hear a lot on the news, and again, I'm not not—I'm I'm not trying to make light of this, but, you know, obviously it's probably happened, but drug, like expensive drugs oh. that people with addicts, you know, that are addicts. Yeah, I've seen like... Uh, pudding and candy. Some... Now, my question would be, I, I don't know, but that's got to be kind of expensive, and I'm thinking why would you spend that much money to
1: give it to someone? Well, I actually else? saw... Not that long ago, uh, a picture online of something. It looked like candy, but they were like, you know, they were loose. Mm -hmm. And it's it's actually sort of a designer drug thing, I guess. They make them look like candy. Yes, that is a
0: big thing. And especially this year here in the state of Missouri, they recently, just just a couple weeks ago, I believe, they pulled somebody over and they had, I think it was like 20 pounds of this stuff. And uh, it even resembled the authentic candy names. Yeah. But it was laced with marijuana and, you know, LSDs, yeah, and I guess. It goes, hallucinogens. Without, goes without saying,
1: don't eat loose candy in your candy bag.
0: But, I, you know, I have to say I would think that would be more for, uh, I don't know what the proper term is, adult Halloween parties that you would invite your friends over. Not necessarily to <laughs> give to random people because I wouldn't think that stuff would be
1: cheap. But. Well, again, yeah, you think it costs money. You don't want to just hand it out. Yeah, I'll just give it to the random strangers. I think we've all heard of haunted houses, extreme haunted houses. I know there's... There's one haunted house. I don't know where it's at. You have to sign a waiver to even go into it. But, uh, you know, the legend of the, the five, what they call the five-level haunted house. It's just five stories. And this story circulated all around the country. And it's always like, hey, I know a guy who knows a guy who, you know what I mean? But, uh, Third-hand information. One version says it costs 25 bucks to get into the house. And they will give you $5 for each level you get through. So if you complete all five levels, you get, get your all money your money back. back. Wow. Each floor is purportedly scarier than the the one before it. Progressively scary. And, uh, you know, another version says that there's a cash prize if you can complete all levels, which has supposedly never been done. There are stories of those who are never seen again upon entering these houses.
0: That's the people that would
1: have got their money back. (laughs) (laughs) They say that that most people disappear between the fourth and fifth floors. Mm -hmm. And there's a story of one guy who uh, did manage to complete the fifth floor. And he was found in shock, wandering the streets the next day, you know, the November 1st, hair gone white and, and unable to speak about his experience, spent the rest of his life institutionalized. Whoa. Well, you know, a friend of a friend told me that.
0: Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Dial that up a bit.
1: And then one of my more interesting ones that I, I found, these, these Halloween urban legends, and kind of possibly the origin of, of what we call, you know, the slashers today, there's a, a photo that circulate, circulated of a 1962 Halloween party, a group of people gathered together, sort of uh, similar to the Overlook Hotel photo in, in The Shining. Gotcha. But in the middle is a, a guy in a black executioner's hood type mask, very sinister looking gentleman. And The story goes that at some point he locked all the doors to the house and decided he was going to kill everybody at this party. Now in this photo there's easily 20, 30 people, so this guy had his work cut out for him. It's going to be a busy night. Supposedly, he manages to kill seven of them with a kitchen knife before the police show up. Somebody, you know, finally got a hold of someone, and, and he goes on the run, and uh, seven years later, the FBI find this mask at the site of a murder, and and they know it's the same mask seven years later. <laughs> but that definitely sounds like uh, it could be, you know, like Jason and Michael Myers, Michael you know, Myers the style. origins of the slasher story. So urban myths, and legends. Halloween is it's just rife with them.
0: Some closing words. Um, I'll kind of read a little poem here. A night when shadow worlds collide and past and present slip and slide. The dead and damned of every shade through our world may now parade. A millennia has passed since our ancestors had first commemorated Samhain, as we had talked about earlier. But today we preserve the festival that we call Halloween from these early origins. It's the most primitive pageant of the Western world that we still observe. Many layers of history are merged together with urban legends sprinkled in and in ancient customs that we still celebrate on the darkest night of the year. Now this year in particular, uh, my wife was reading, it's going to be a full moon on Halloween. It's also a blue moon. The Uh, second full moon of October. And I hate to say this, but hey, it's 2020. (laughs) So there's that. 2020 has developed quite the reputation. Uh, Indeed. Um, But the bonfire from the early origins that we had talked about not only marked the approaching of the new year, but the torches were used, as we said, to light the fires across the lands. Those old stories are still alive today, passed down through generations updated a little bit to to fit you know our generations that we have but thank goodness we still have storytellers because while we do have movies and television to me I still like the story that you can use your
1: imagination and picture
0: things yourselves
1: well like I said that uh that old storyteller in Silver Dollar City which I'll never remember the guy's name but Nothing captures the imagination. He made an imprint on you. I mean, I, I remember that story today almost as as, as, I, as if I'd heard it yesterday. I mean, just, there's there's nothing better than sitting around the fire telling these, these st- stories. Well,
0: and again, tonight was kind of a special night, a Halloween special, if you will, but this is yet just another example of stories that you'll find on Nightmares on the Lost Highway. We hope you had some fun tonight. We entertained, humored you a little. uh, Happy Halloween. Happy Halloween, everyone. Hey, this is Eric, and I just wanted to give a little reach out and a plug to our first paying sponsor for Nightmares on the Lost Highway. That's our little family uh, toy and gaming shop here in Lebanon, Missouri, called Raven's Loft. If you happen to be in the central missouri area please check us out we have two locations first one is at 223 west commercial downtown lebanon we've also branched out to a second location out at the heartland antique mall also here in lebanon you're going to find all kinds of vintage toys star wars star trek gi joe transformers migo universal monsters all types of gaming board games magic the gathering so we would appreciate it if you'd uh, stop by you can like our facebook page Uh, swing by and check us out thank you so much I would like to thank uh, Alex Tudor, who has been helping us uh, a lot uh, with our endeavors on this podcast.
1: You can call him our producer at this point, I think. Our
0: producer, electronic recording technician. uh, um, He's uh, the one that's setting up all the mics and the hardware in the background. And then Bill Weirs is going through taking his time to try to clean and edit this up and uh, give us the best possible version that we can present to you folks. want to thank everybody involved with that.